I sat for a long time just thinking, how in the world do I introduce this story? It's the kind of story that you read about somewhere online or you see in a movie and you think, how does someone live through that? And yet, this is a dear friend of mine. She sat in front of me and shared things that I could not even imagine or make up. I never knew her story. In fact, she told me later that no one knows this story. She's never told anybody. And now she's telling everyone because it's time to talk about that flicker of light, the one that was always there, even when she couldn't see it, that always came back, to talk about the fact that the reason her life works so well now is because she lived the life that she did. She took her trauma and she turned it into light. I'm excited to hear your story and get to know you a little bit better along with all the other people that will also get to know you better. <laughs> um, so I want you to tell me your story in your own words and sort of lay the foundation for who you were, where you were, and what happened. Okay. So the story starts sort of in the middle. Um, my mother is a very good published author. She's written some amazing, amazing books, and one of the books that she wrote was called Living at the Edge of the World, and it was the true story, it is the true story of two um, middle-class white teenage girls who became runaways and joined the homeless folk living in Grand Central Station in the 80s at the height of the crack epidemic, and they were best friends, their names were Tina and April, and April killed herself on her 17th birthday. Tina used that as the impetus to get out of the world, out, get out of that, that scene, and went through many different drug rehabs. She lived with us for a little while, and she eventually became clean and sober and started her life over again, in part for April, because April couldn't. It was this beautiful story. It didn't get a lot of media. It didn't get a lot of promotion. And it kind of just has laid quietly in the world. And the thing about it is that there's a much, much bigger story that my mother wouldn't tell. It was published when I was 15, 15 or 16. And if she had told the story of how she got involved with April and Tina, it would have gone Oprah and Donahue and like it would have gotten really really big but she decided and I can't remember to what extent I was a part of this decision she decided not to tell the whole story and the real story is that we knew April because April saved my life when Brit is 13 years old her mother decides that it's important to do some volunteer work so once a week, they go down and volunteer at a food truck outside of Grand Central Station, handing out sandwiches to the homeless. At that food line, there were all the characters that lived in Grand Central Station at that time. It was a very well-known food line. And one of them was a 19 or 20-year-old, very good-looking man. And he was a known pimp and con artist. And unbeknownst to my mom, he started grooming me. 13 is a tough age for any kid. However, Britt goes on to describe that she was an especially miserable 13-year-old. She didn't have a lot of friends at school. The kids made fun of her. She was really insecure. 
and she didn't have the best home life. It was rocky. She wasn't happy there. And that's what these kind of guys look for. She was the perfect vulnerable target. He would start slipping me notes and smiling at me and um, just kind of courting me. I remember having a secret from my parents. I remember that he said all the things, you know, to make me feel special and um, unique and like he was falling in love with me. And a couple of months later, he convinced me to run away with him. And I remember waiting until the middle of the night and he came to my parents' building and I stayed up all night because I didn't want to miss the time, 3, 4 a.m. that we were supposed to meet. And I took some clothes and my teddy bear and I left. What he told me was that we were going to go live in Florida and it was going to be this amazing life and we were going to get married. We spent about three days in the tunnels of the, the deep, deep tunnels of Grand Central Station in abandoned buildings in different um, boroughs. It was winter, so it was really cold. But I remember crawling through the rubble of a wall to get to a hole where we slept for a night or two. And his plan was to get me on a bus where he was going to take me to Florida and put me on the streets. Britt goes on to explain that during this period of time, of course, she was raped. He is still being really nice to her because this is the honeymoon period. He is still trying to convince her that they're going to get on a bus and live happily ever after. And eventually, they end up in an old office building near Grand Central Station. A few hours before she's supposed to get on the bus to Florida, where she would then be sold into prostitution, the police find her. And this is all because of a teenage girl named April. The police and my parents had been putting pressure on April because she knew everyone in Grand Central Station. She knew everything. And, of course, in that culture, as in many cultures like this, there's a, you know, you snitch, you die rule. And April was in a really tough position. If she told, she could be killed or isolated from her life and seen as a snitch. And if she didn't, there was going to be one more little girl in Grand Central Station for whom the same thing would be happening as what happened to her. And with hours before we left on the bus, April finally folded and she told the police where we work and they got me back with a bus ticket in his pocket for me and hours before that bus left. And I remember the police arriving. I don't remember him being there. He might have run out at that point. Um, I know they issued a, a warrant for his arrest and never caught him. They never caught him? No, he fled. He went to a different state. Yeah. But April decided that she was not going to be responsible for me joining her in her lifestyle. Of course, it wasn't until after she went back with her parents and the police that she learned what her kidnapper's real plan was for her and that the charges against him were rape and kidnapping. But for Britt, that reality deeply conflicted with her own experience. 
in hindsight, when my parents got me back and there was a warrant or was, you know, issued for his arrest and the charges were rape and kidnapping. And I remember thinking, but is that really what happened? Like, can it be rape and kidnapping if I went with him? And then to what degree am I like the biggest moron in the world? Because I didn't know that I was being kidnapped and raped. Of course, the physical and emotional fallout from this incredibly traumatic experience was enormous. And then, of course, you have to go give a statement to the police. You know, I only have fleeting memories of that whole time. But I remember just going into this deep depression where I didn't want to talk to anyone. I remember that I had to tell the police what happened and I had to make a statement. And there had to be a doctor's examination and that went into the statement. And All of those things that feel so humiliating. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm wondering is, is there a point when you're together with him where your mind goes, oh, this isn't love? I don't think I had the concept, this isn't love. I thought this is dangerous and it's uncomfortable and I'm scared and I'm hurt and something feels wrong. This is not what I pictured. So I don't know that I had the mechanism to actually evaluate does this feel like love or not, but it certainly didn't feel right and it was terrifying. I knew about the tunnels of Grand Central Station and they're, they're really bizarre. There are like seven levels and they go down to the level where people live that no one sees. So I knew I was in a really dangerous situation. I knew that he was the only thing that was standing between me and much worse things than I could imagine. And I knew that... So then it becomes a codependency immediately, right? Yeah. yeah. So you switch into like... Which a, he had already worked on. Yeah. It, it is a brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And so he became, you know, in the beginning, sort of my savior that was going to get away from, get me away from my parents who didn't understand me and this mm-hmm. life that I was miserable in and... Then it all just started getting really frightening and confusing. Talk to me a little bit about the process. So obviously you go through this humiliation, you know, then it's all blown up. And and that's hard in its own ways, like Mm -hmm. going to the doctor, doing all these Mm -hmm. things, making these statements. Now you're humiliated and embarrassed because, of course, there's that part of you that you talked about a little bit that says, well, wait, this is somehow partially my fault. Yeah. So talk a little bit about how you process that as time went on I didn't Mm. like there's still a part of my brain that's like it was totally my fault like I made that decision of my own free will so there's still a part of my brain that's like what the ever-loving God was I thinking what was wrong with me but I think that part of it was also just that I was a messed up 13 year old and he knew that that's why he picked me right there are other kids that go through Grand Central Station and he picked me for a reason I had victim written all over me because I was so miserable And so, you know, messed up at that point. You were ripe for picking. I was completely ripe for picking. Rit talks to me about how she just wants to move on. She wants to forget this ever happened. And she doesn't want to talk about it. So she just doesn't. But the kidnapping and the trauma that it created are just one part of her story. And as is often the case, before things would get better for her, her life would get a lot worse. And I basically spent the next four, five, six, seven years just self-destructing slowly, just running the streets of New York and 
most of my friends were homeless and lived in abandoned buildings and, you know, just running myself into the ground and passing out in gutters in East New York. I think there was a layer of brokenness that started way before the kidnapping and just ramped up after it. Um, I don't think that I ever really had successful help in dealing with it through no fault of my parents. I mean, I don't blame them at all. I didn't get enough help to really let that be the low point. It just kept getting lower and lower for years with me putting myself in increasingly more dangerous situations. What turned the tide? What made that change? It was so many years later. Um, when I was 19, I was assaulted again. It was my first apartment. And um, I was coming home late. I worked at a club in New York City, a really famous club in New York City. And I was coming home at 3 in the morning. And I had gone to the deli. Um, I was a, probably a little drunk. I had gone to the deli and gotten a sandwich and a bag of cheese doodles and a drink. And I was carrying it and let myself into the building without looking behind me. And a man forced his way in um, behind me. Most of what I remember is the visual of the things that I had bought to eat spread out on the floor because I had dropped the bag um, and just these flashes of like the turkey sandwich and the bag of cheese doodles and the drink lying on the floor. Um, that was in a way much worse for me because it was so much scarier than what happened to me when I was 13. What happened to me when I was 13 really messed with my head but it was someone who was being nice to me. I stopped talking and stopped eating for a couple of weeks and my ex took care of me. I never went back to the apartment again. I stopped living there and very shortly after I moved in with the Hells Angels. My parents obviously thought I had completely lost my mind, but they had beat people up that had looked at me or talked to me on the street. And in my mind, I had obviously failed miserably at keeping myself safe. And the only thing that made sense was to move in with people that I knew could keep me safe. I didn't know enough about them to know that they could also potentially be a threat. Right. Um, that wasn't what I had seen of them. I had seen them defending me, and I knew that they had the power to hurt people that hurt me. I think it's important to tell you a little bit more about the Hells Angels. Anthony Tate, who worked undercover for the FBI as a member of the Hells Angels in the mid-1980s, says... I saw countless instances of narcotics use and sales, rape, felony battery, petty theft, grand theft, weapons violations of all kinds, and extortion. I also heard murders being planned and descriptions of murders already committed. However, I also read about the trust and loyalty felt by the men inside the Hells Angels. So for a young girl who's terrified of being alone after what just happened to her and knowing nothing about this club... It really looks like the perfect place to be part of a family and feel safe. However, Stephen Wyman Blackburn, who is also a member, writes, What non-members also know about Hell's Angels is that once you become an angel, it sure is hell tough, if not impossible, to leave. In fact, many people believe you're more likely to get whacked than get kicked out. And that's what makes the next part of Brit's story so amazing. That sort of was the beginning of coming out of the shells, weird as it sounds, because I was able to be as angry and violent as I wanted to be. I could jump over bars and beat people up, and there was never any repercussion because I was with the Hells Angels. They could beat people up that bothered me. Um, 
and it kind of restored my faith in my ability to keep myself safe mm-hmm. in the weirdest of ways. I don't know if anyone listening will understand that. But it gave me the confidence again that I could be safe. It was really healing and that allowed me to swing the other way so I could sort of come back to a healthy middle eventually. But it also made me aware enough that the way that I was living was really not sustainable. Um, My body was already shutting down from so many years of drugs and alcohol. I was getting immune diseases and seeing the shadier, darker side of the angels. So at a certain point, I moved out. I left, which is also unheard of. I broke up with my boyfriend. I was like, I'm moving out. And he was like, all right, which I took for granted. That wasn't an option for any other woman living there that I knew of. They were not allowed to leave. It's one of those points in my life where I'm sure that there was someone looking out for me because that was so unheard of. And I just started healing. And I really think that that kind of was the beginning of it, although I've never really realized that until now. It's interesting that you went through this after the second assault Mm -hmm. and you live with them and get almost violent. Like Mm -hmm. you're like physically starting to protect yourself. Yep. And then somehow some sort of switch got flipped. Yeah. And you just were like, okay, I'm done. It restored my belief that I was safe again, or as safe as any of us ever are. And I was able to kind of recalibrate from there in a way. So at that point, you're what, not even 20? At that point, I was probably about 20, Mm 21-ish, yeah. For Britt, living with the Hells Angels was a pivotal time in her process toward healing. She describes every moment after that as a step up and out of the life of pain and trauma that she had been living up until then. Her experience with the Hells Angels also ended up laying a foundation for the work that she would end up doing later in life with women. Living with the women of the Hells Angels gave me a tenderness for them. And I suffered some guilt that I was the one that was allowed to get out. And I had to leave a bunch of them behind that I know would have liked to get out. And um, I think that that sort of started my tender spot for women in hard places. Um, Additionally, I was working a lot of that time in topless bars with women who were dancers and sometimes prostitutes. And I really grew to love them and feel very protective and defensive of them. So I think that that kind of got me started on the path towards helping women and specifically women who were in spots that maybe other women wouldn't understand. I think that's huge, Mm. huge, because I think for somebody who's been there, you have literally been there, Mm -hmm. you can actually understand what it's like Mm -hmm. to be in a place that most of the rest of society may not have ever really experienced and I wondered along the way where it was Mm -hmm. that you connected with women yeah because the work that you do now as a business coach is for women Mm -hmm. it's funny I never really traced it back to the hell's angels days but I really think that was the beginning of my mourning for women who didn't necessarily see the way out um whether it was emotionally see the way out or physically see the way out and and my regret and sadness about the women that I've known of in my life you know even going back to April that I was not able to help 
um, that helped me in so many ways too, because the women in the Hells Angels were, I mean, there are a lot of things to learn when you live with them and knowing them keeps you safe. They helped me through that and helped me learn the things I needed to know. And I, and then I left and was not able to extend a hand back. And I, I always think about them. I periodically tried to find some of them on Facebook, but I know that I won't. I hope that what I do for women here on sort of honors them in some way and reaches them. So you go through that period, you come out the other side of it, your life moves on. Through a series of events, you end up in Maine and you have now this business that supports women in business. You're a business coach. Mm -hmm. How many women do you coach? Do you know? Depending on the programs at the time, you know, I, I like to keep my programs really small because I it's more mentoring than coaching. So I'm really, you know, mm -hmm. when I work with a woman, I know who her kids are. I know what her dog's name is. I, so probably it hovers between 20 and 30 women at any given time. Okay. And then your other love, you ended up, I know, in New York with a pit bull. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was gifted a broken bait dog from the streets of New York in a really weird turnabout way. I was sort of left holding his leash and someone said he's a present for you and I had never asked for him and so I had to learn about him. Um, he was my gateway pit bull. You've seen pictures of him, my I Boo have. Radley. They're such misunderstood creatures and there's a public misconception that there's a monster aspect to them which really attracts me because I love the misunderstood and the you know the perceived monsters. So I got involved in pit bull rescue with him 20 years ago-ish and then uh, raised my daughter doing Pitbull Rescue in New York City and then moved to Maine and married a man who I'm lucky enough to not think it was totally insane to start a Pitbull Rescue. So we started Pity Posse a year and a half ago and it's really taking off this year. From an outside perspective, what's so awesome to me about your story is that you took a lot of, a lot of uh, sadness and anger and brokenness and confusion from the time you were young. You know, you were in this place that could have so, so many times over and over and over led you down a path of destruction. Mm -hmm. And you made the choice <laughs> repeatedly to change all that and mm -hmm. to not follow that path yeah. that you were in for a long time. But what it, what it has given you is the ability to be so empathetic and so mm. compassionate to, like you said, those out there that are perceived as monsters, whether yeah. they be pit bulls or other people, humans, yeah. that, you know, you know better. I think to some extent I've always felt a calling, whether it was conscious or not, but there's always been a flicker of a light that I think I've been able to stay guided by. And, you know, it's funny because my ex and I, who knew a lot of the same people that I knew, but he knew all the same people that I knew back then, we consistently remark upon how many of the kids that I grew up with and ran the streets with and then were with later are, most of them are dead. I think that it's extremely rare, even if you just look at the numbers of who survived those days and who didn't. And I really feel like there was always something that was pulling me and calling me and holding me up. Um, whether I was passed out in a gutter or riding, riding on the back of some methed out biker's bike at six in the morning doing 120 on the New Jersey Turnpike, which happened repeatedly. 
there was definitely something guiding me that I couldn't always see, but looking back, it was always there. Thank God you're able to look back. <laughs> I know. <laughs> right? I know. I'm grateful. There, there I'm super few. grateful. I want to say a huge thank you to Britt for sharing her story. After we were done recording, she joked about her nine lives, like a cat, and how grateful she is. And then she told me that grateful feels like an understated word to describe her life now. That she also has this air of responsibility. That she extends a hand backwards to others, since it's the same hand that she was extended from other women who stood up for her along the way. Personally, I believe that for those of us who have survived trauma, there's no greater gift than we could give ourselves and the others who helped us along the way than to live a really fantastic life. I am witness to the wonderful life that Brit has created in full gratitude. May we all be so brave as to do the same. I'm sure you noticed some changes to the podcast. That is because I have a new producer and she is fabulous. A huge thanks and shout out to Stephanie Cohn. Also, we would like to acknowledge Blue Dot Sessions and Keith Kenneth, who provided the music for this episode. Another big change that I'm super excited to announce here on the podcast today is that we are now offering advertising and sponsorship for the podcast. You can sign up and become one of the first businesses to have me promote you and your super cool, unique business here to our listeners. You could also support the podcast with a small monthly donation via Patreon, which is a crowdfunding website. You can find me on the Patreon website, which is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Or we will have links to all these options on my website, jendeanphoto.com, on the Gardenia Project page. Or you can also always email me directly, which is jen at jendeanphoto.com. All of this funding will ensure that I can pay my new producer, which she'll really appreciate because we all appreciate getting paid for our jobs. She's fabulous and I want her to stick around. So I thank you in advance for your support in this new way. Till the next time, guys. I'm out.